Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Dante Ye, one of your co-hosts for this series. In this episode, we'll be taking an in-depth look into the current article, Permanent versus Absorbable Mesh for Ventral Hernia Repair in Contaminated Fields, a multi-center propensity-matched analysis of one-year outcomes using the Abdominal Core Health Quality Collaborative Database. I'm honored today to be joined by the senior author, Dr. Flavio Mulcher from New York University. Flavio, thank you for joining me today. Before we begin, do you have any potential conflicts of interest to disclose? Hi, Dante. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Yes, I do. I'm a consultant for several uh, mesh companies that includes Medtronic, BD, Integra, uh, Deep Blue, and for intuitive surgical. So. Uh, those are the conflicts of interest. I'm just consult for them. Uh, but once this paper is about meshes, uh, they, they need to be very uh, transparent. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the transparency. All right. So can you give us a brief summary of your study design and, des and describe to us your main findings? Sure. Um, there has been always been a debate on how much we should use permanent mesh on contamination. And when I was trained a few decades ago, infection was absolutely contraindication to put a foreign body on a, on a heart repair. And that I think that is how generations of surgeons have been trained. Um, nowadays, in the light of recent publication, most likely in the last decade, we understood that there's some occasions that should be fine to use that kind of products and foreign body. And even if you do have infection, maybe you can clear out the infection without mesh removal. That is always very morbid for the patient. But I practiced 15 years in Brazil before moving to US six years ago. And I was stunned by the difference in, 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 in practice between the two countries and the liability and the legal system in US put surgeons in a more sensitive position. So I've, I've been traveling the whole world, lecturing and doing surgery, and that is a very US problem. The liability plays a good big role on taking medical decisions. Um, so I decided to use the American, uh, the Abdominal Core Health Quality Collaborative to pull up data, uh, real world data, that we, that's how we call it, is not a randomized control trial, it's not a control environment, it's just a pool of hundreds of US surgeons putting data and gathering for the last 10 years. So right now we have over 100,000 patients in that database. And I think there's an awesome resource to have, as I said, real good real world data. So we designed a, a retrospective analysis and we tried to do a propensity matched score system to try to really match groups of patients to be fair on that comparison. 
So we elected ventral horn repair because it's usually when you have more contamination. Inguinal horn repairs are fairly clean almost all the time. And we match groups between age, gender, type of procedure, mesh position, and mesh type. And then we run analysis using clean contaminated and contaminated uh, situations. Uh, we exclude infected uh, situations and clean and clean uh, situation, just clean and clean, uh, clean contaminated and contaminated. And the results were exactly what we've been seeing published outside US and sometimes in US as well. There is no statistics difference between surgical site infection, reoperation, mesh removal between permanent products and absorbable products. So the feeling that when we use absorbable problem, uh, absorbable product, we will have less complications in face of contamination does not prove it true on real world. In the other hand, if we analyze recurrence, there's much more recurrences when we do use absorbable products and that makes sense. You are comparing a permanent product for a repair versus an absorbable product. So those are uh, factors that really should impact our decision on you or decrease the fear from surgeons to use synthetic permanent products in face of contamination. But again, as I said in the beginning, this medical decision to use those absorbable products is heavily based on fear of liability. And that's something that should be respected. Great, thank you. Um, as a US trained surgeon, I grew up in this medical legal environment and I will tell you that it was very strongly encouraged, if not dogma, that, that you should not place the uh, permanent mesh in a, in a contaminated and clean contaminated field. Um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, looking at your data set, it looks like 73% of, of cases, the surgeon did in fact place a permanent mesh in it. So, so even though I grew up and, and presumably a lot of these surgeons contributing to this data set also grew up in this environment, it seems like already we are comfortable placing permanent mesh because the bulk three quarters of the patients had permanent mesh. What do you think about that? That is the bias of the of the database because uh, this is a kind of a national database for abdominal wall surgery. So most of the surgeons that input data on this are related to the abdominal wall surgery arena and dedicated somehow. I'm not saying they're all harness specialists, but they somehow pay attention to harness surgery and to abdominal wall surgery. So that set of surgeons probably has a little bit more knowledge about the real world results or international results of mesh due contamination. Uh, so probably that explains a little bit why with all this fear of permanent meshes in contamination, we still have, and I, I'm glad that that shows that is okay. And I think that's how we should base even our legal defense against uh, claims that that decision was not based on our own expertise. That's 
bulky data showing that it should be fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the highly controlled randomized controlled trials that have been recently published, those were all performed in centers of excellence with high volume hernia centers and high, highly experienced uh, centers or surgeons and centers. Um, and this data set, there is a certain degree of, of effort and interest. I mean, I do hernias, but I'm not contributing data to this data set, right? So, so this is a little bit more representative of a larger cohort of surgeons and centers across the country, but not maybe reflective of your average general surgeon or emergency general surgeon who's doing these middle of the night contaminated hernias. Um, but it's a step in the right direction. And I think it's also nice that it shows that the standard of care actually seems to be putting a permanent mesh in. If three quarters of the, uh, the surgeons are placing permanent meshes, and these are all surgeons with an interest in hernia surgery, I think that that speaks volumes about our comfort level, even at this point with putting the permanent mesh in. Yeah. Um, and a, a limitation of that analysis is the short, uh, re relative short-term analysis. When mm. we discuss a permanent foreign body, that should be analyzed over a decade or more because uh, due to the limitation of data set, we did 30 days reoperation, surgical side infection and complications in one year recurrence. Uh, but if you think about it, we need to follow that cohort of patients longer enough to assure a chronic infection not appear years after. And I've seen that. I've seen patients nine, 10 years after an elective ventral hernia repair coming with an intercutaneous fistula involved in a prior mesh. So I'm not saying that we need to take it for granted, but it shows, it shows that at least at short term, it, should, it looks like it worked. I've have, I have had this discussion with several hernia experts, and there's some fear about long-term infection on synthetics permanent meshes, and we just need to follow those patients long enough to make sure that it's safe. Um, an interesting subgroup analysis that we did on this group twist completely this uh, idea. Uh, once we have the full analysis, we elect a subgroup analysis that is where we include the interperitoneal mesh position and our only position of mesh. So we only analyze retromuscular sublay mesh position. That should be our goal or gold standard. To, there's a holy plane that we should put mesh. Uh, the only position is something that is feasible, but has been discussed not be the ideal position of a mesh for a big defect. The, in the intraperitoneal position requires a coated mesh. So every time we put a coat in the a coating on the mesh, we change its performance because increase biofilm and increase chronic infection. So most of those chronic infections, they're related to coated mesh in, in an interperitoneal position. So going back to the analysis, the sub-analysis, if we exclude what we call suboptimal repairs, we only analyze sublay retromuscular repairs. That is no different again in surgical site infection and complications, but pay attention, there's no different in recurrences. So it's like, the technique is much more important than the mesh itself. If you do a good technique, even with the absorbable mesh, you have equal results. So that brings up 
another point of discussion that is patient wish. So now we, I see every day in my clinic, patient coming and indicated for heart repair. Every time you use the word mash, they have a question. They heard about it. They saw the ad on Facebook or outdoor saying the mesh is terrible and call your lawyer if you have a mesh repair. So that is a, a, a that is awareness in, in US about it. And I respect lawyers business and that's okay, but we need to have a conversation. Most of the patient understands and they will be fine, but there's some patients that they don't want permanent foreign bodies on, on their body and that we should respect. There's a patient autonomy. It looks like if they don't want that and we can provide a proper executed procedure as a sublate, it should do, give them a good result. So depending on how you analyze the results, a large or a subgroup analysis, you may say, I don't want the foreign body. If I have the same results, I'll go with the absorbable. So it's a very interesting to see how we can really deep dive into data, data sets and understand different results and conclusions. Yeah, that, that is actually really interesting. I'm glad you guys did that sub-analysis. And, and I think this type of you know, hypothesis generating is really only possible with a large data set like the one that you used. I mean, it, it's not gonna be really feasible to try and design a, a, uh, a prospective randomized. So I think that the only way we can answer these sort of questions or at least generate these hypotheses is using something like you did. So pretend I'm a patient in your clinic right now and I say, oh, I don't, I don't want mesh. I, I saw on, on Facebook that it's bad. How, how would you counsel me and tell me what, what are the differences in the, today's generation, the newest generation of meshes compared to older generations? It's interesting because the safer meshes are the old meshes. The mesh that has been in the market for 50 or 60 years, they have proven themselves, the non-coated macroporous polypropylene, for example. Those meshes have proven that they can survive infection, they can clear infection, they uh, probably reduce weight that more comfortable for the patient. Uh, there, I always acknowledge that there were some recalls from meshes. Those products are not on the market anymore. The products that we do have in the market are safe to be used. I explained that mesh are not complications free, uh, but if myself or a family member would have a heart repair, I would like to have a mesh on myself. I think that give my, give the risk benefit is much uh, on the better end of it, of reducing, reduction of recurrence and better quality of life at long term. Um, and I always make a very simple analogy to try to make it, put this in perspective. You saw an ad about a mesh problem. As you see an ad about, if you get in a car accident, call us. So we do have car accidents and we can go after to claims for car, car accidents, but it's still safe to ride a car or drive a car. That does not mean that we should stop riding cars. We just need to be cautious of the consequence of it. The same thing with meshes. Great, thank you. Uh, I'm going to pivot for a second and ask you uh, a little bit technical detail about the statistical methods that you used. So uh, you used the propensity score matching method. Uh, can you briefly describe it in layman's terms, if you can, and, and how does it uh, at least partially overcome some of the limitations of a non-randomized patient cohort? 
Yeah. So whether, every time you do a retrospective analysis, you look to the to the past. You can see the results, but you cannot control what happened because of the past. So that's when you lose the most of the controlling aspect of put up a, a design for a trial or a statistic analysis. The way that, at, at least at my knowledge, that we can best try to overcome the limitation of retrospective analysis is to check those large groups and try exactly to match them. So for example, on this, uh, we know that obese patients might have more wound problems than non-obese patients on ventral horn repairs. So if I just analyze my group of patients, I might see more absorbable mesh on obese patients. The surgeons are afraid to use a permanent mesh because that patient might have more wound problems. So they instinctively use more absorbable mesh. But now- So, uh, uh, selection, so a selection bias. Yeah. Right. Now when I analyze the groups, I may have more problems on the obese patients and on absorbable mesh because I just have a higher risk patients on that group. So the selection bias, we, it happens when we analyze the past retrospectively. So the, uh, the way to try to neutralize or minimize that is to really match the groups who have the same proportion of obesity, same proportion of recurrent hernias. We know the recurrent hernias have more risk of, of, of recurrence on the next of further repairs. So, and wider or bigger mesh are more complex than smaller mesh. So we try to control and match groups before the analysis. So that's only possible when you have a, a huge number of, of, of subjects. If you have a 30, a group, a 30 subjects in one group and 30 subjects subject in another group, when you try to match, maybe you just match two of them. So now you cannot do any analysis. When you match thousands of patients, you might be able, as we did, to match two to one, three to one. You can even uh, ratio that uh, analysis to make, to take, uh, more advantage of those higher numbers. Great, thank you, thank you. All right, so uh, your time span for this study was one year hernia recurrence. As you said earlier, we don't know longer term than that, uh, but presumably as the years go by, we can uh, we can start to answer some of those questions. But were, were these hernia recurrences diagnosed by CT scan, by patient report, or by surgeon report? At the QC or the ACH QC, uh, we, we usually use uh, patient report outcomes, uh, questionnaires to go after quality of life. And we use uh, validate phone interviews as well. So that what, what that means. If the patient says that he or she has a bulge and has pain on the scar, that patient needs to be exam and had a CT scan because there's a higher chance of recurrence. What we learn if the patient answers no to bulge on this on incision and no pain, the chance of recurrence is extremely low. Uh, so that we can imagine that is a no recurrence. But to give the diagnosis of a recurrence, we once we select or we draw or, or we, we, we triage those patients with those questionnaires, they need to be examined by a physician or has the CAT scan showing the recurrence to really give the, 
the, the, the, the stamp of a recurrence. And that is a problem. And we, we imagine that we continue to uh, follow those patients, but they just get lost at follow-up. As much as we try, those, those benign diseases, we don't have the patient wanting to come back to make sure that he or she is fine. If they feel fine, they're probably not coming back. And that's how we try to do email or phone calls to at least to identify who are in the risk of recurrence and then try to convince them to come back and get a scan or get exam. Okay, so I just want to I just want to unpack that a, a second. So so the we have a problem as as in all <laughs> uh, surgical cohorts, we have a problem with loss to follow up. And and you think that there may be an imbalance that there is actually the patients that we're following longer term who are still coming back and answering phone calls and coming back to the clinic, they they may be overrepresented by patients with problems, and that the ones who are doing fine who who successfully cured their hernia are the ones that we're losing to follow. So so we may have a skewed uh, perception of the actual overall um, recurrence rate. Is that is that correct? Yes, one can say that. It's the same thing in regular life. If you get a car service, you got a survey, you reply it. Six months from now, you got another survey, you reply it. A year from now, I say, come on, my car is fine. I'm, I don't need to keep replying <laughs> that survey. So I yeah. always do that kind of analogy in our day-by-day -day life because we are all humans and that mm -hmm. is something. But at least we try actively reach out that patient from the QC with phone calls and emails. So as the, the better chance that we, we have to try to catch those patients and some kind of follow-up. Okay, got it, got it. All right, and um, what your this study uh, or this database is is does it include emergency hernia repairs or just elective? Both, both. Okay, so so these the results of your study are applicable to all in addition to the elective, you know, um, of scheduled hernia, but if I'm on call tonight and I get incarcerated hernia with threatened bowel or or dead bowel, I can sort of apply the results of your study to, to my practice tonight. Yes, we do not make a lot of difference between those. For sure, we have much more elective repairs than emergency repairs that everyone has, uh, but uh, it should not be a different approach. It's different if you are temporizing a situation. So you just closing abdomen with some kind of prothesis that you, you are going, coming back two or three days after to do a second look or wash out. But once mm -hmm. you elect to do the final repair of that wall, probably it should be the same concept. And would you always put a mesh or is there a situation where you, Flavio, would say, I'm just gonna do primary repair and then I'll deal, uh, and then I'll, I'll uh, put in a mesh a year from now or, or later on. Yes, and that publications, they're not my own patients. I mean, even coming from Brazil and have all this history, I adapt to United States. So nowadays, if I have a heavily contaminated case, probably I'll not use a permanent synthetic mesh. That's my own opinion. Uh, the study reflects results from that database that is not my own database. Um, I think that is nothing wrong to temporize a solution and fight that battle another day. So if you can, I'll give the typical example of my, my, my practice. Uh, 
ostomy reversal or an intercutaneous fistula take back. So not only I have contamination, but I have anastomosis. So now I have a second risk factor that is I can have a leak, I may need a drainage, I may need a reoperation. And I don't want to burn the bridge of the uh, uh, rather muscular plane for a, or a component separation. And then I need to take out the mesh, I need to reoperate, leave the patient an open abdomen. So in those situations, I try not to burn bridges. Uh, we can pre-optimize those patients as much as we can, even Botox that abdominal wall to allow us to close primarily. We know that maybe we have a 50% recurrence rate, but if that happens, we are able to reapproach that defect on a much better situation without, uh, ideally without contamination. So it sounds to me that if you have multiple goals in that operation, that the hernia is secondary, that, that the ostomy reversal or the fistula resection is primarily your main objective. You take care of that, and then you can sort of deprioritize the hernia until a later date, and then when you can approach it in a more controlled and, uh, and favorable setting. Yes. Uh, the caviar is sometimes the patient has such a problem with the abdominal wall that you cannot avoid managing the abdominal wall. Patient has a huge eventration. And I saw I just saw a patient recently that she has an ostomy. She has a 25 centimeter defect on her abdomen. So we cannot just reverse a Hartman without going through the hernia and all this. But you're right. Usually I prioritize the GI work, the infection control, and then deal with the final abdominal reconstruction at a better time. Great. Thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your, your clinic today to, to speak with us about this, this study. Um, I would encourage all of our readers to look for the upcoming, upcoming publication. Again, Permanent versus Absorbable Mesh for Eventual Hernia Repair in Contaminated Fields, a Multicenter Propensity Mass Analysis of One-Year Outcomes Using it, the Abdominal Core Health Quality Collaborative Database. Thank you for listening to The Operative Word. Please send us any feedback at postmaster at facs.org. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to The Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast.